Hey everyone, it's good to be back in the new year. I'm Tamina Zahiri. I'm Ruby Sitar. I'm Joyce Lynn. And I'm Kevin Swiber. This is Breaking Changes Roundtable. This week we discussed the perfect storm of bad weather and outdated technology dooming holiday travel for Southwest Airlines customers. Also, is it time to return to the office full-time? Uh, and we'll revisit once again the soap opera that is Sam Bankman Green. Amid treacherous weather and technology failures, thousands of Southwest airline flights had been canceled during the holiday season, leaving customers separated from their families, their homes, and even stranding their luggage. Could $300 travel vouchers and refunds really restore faith? So from what it sounds like, outdated uh, scheduling software was really the main culprit for clogging these customer service lines. And this caused airline crew members to pivot to manually matching crews with aircraft. And if you all can imagine, that was probably a really tedious process. Um, From what I read, there were something like 15,000 flights affected by this. So I'm curious what you all think and what your thoughts are specifically on the need to invest in better systems. Well, they're saying the software is from the 1900s, right? So that's uh, <laughs> they're, they're blaming the software for this. Um, but really, like it's really easy to blame software. However, someone in management made a decision year after year to not invest in improving their software, right? To say, hey, we're going to cut costs. We're not going to we're not going to improve things. It's totally fine to call people on their landline phone and tell them they need to be at a plane at a certain point in time, right? But I think, you know, the, the reality is like, yeah, software does get old. Times do change. Like you need to grow into the digital age. Um, and it sounds like they didn't do that here. It's not just the software too. I mean, it's the underlying operational process that they had and that, that that's what they chose not to update. So if they're, if everyone else is doing hub spoke and they're doing point to point, that's going to be like, it can't, they can't upgrade the software without also updating the operations in this. Like we see this every day, a huge legacy company cannot pivot on a dime. There's so much other costs that needs to go with it. And what do you do? Just kind of like little by little all at once. When do you do that? How much is it going to cost shareholders? Yeah, I think that when these mature legacy companies choose not to handle that technical debt or not to modernize their systems, that's where you see these smaller companies kind of coming, sweep, sweeping in and taking over and taking over market share. I In Austin and in Texas and Dallas area, Southwest is a really big revered airline out here. They've got a couple major hubs and people are seriously burned by what happened. And the fact that this was something they could have avoided with a little bit more foresight and investment. I mean, they just got a huge payout during COVID from the government to support them due to the lack of folks flying. So I'm pretty disappointed to hear that so many people got stranded over the holidays due to this. I have heard of Southwest, like really aggressive brand loyalty. Um, I haven't seen that for really any other airline. And that makes me think that this isn't something that's going to be a showstopper for Southwest because I feel like this also isn't new for Southwest. This has come up before because of the same technology. And I'm sure somebody in leadership is just like, well, this is a short term, you know, bummer for us, uh, but not enough of a push to change things. So I'm just curious if they'll continue just kind of kicking that bucket down the road or make some real change. Yeah, well, I guess the question is, did it like affect their stock price? Like, did their stock value go down? Um, because if not, I can't really imagine they'll they'll change much, right? I mean, it's sure it has a, a hit on reputation, 
Um, and we all get to see it from like a nice privileged position of, of making fun of someone else right now, right? But we, a lot of folks are in these companies where they haven't modernized. Uh, and it's really just a matter of time before someone else is like, oh, no, that's the system I work on. <laughs> and that went down and several people are stranded. Well, and I personally I don't think that the stock price will be impacted significantly. I mean, Ruby said this, it's brand loyalty, but if, even if you don't have brand loyalty, how many of us make shopping decisions strictly by the brand? Or are you just comparing, like there's so many aggregators, is it cost? Is it just convenience? Um, and I think Southwest was known for customer service, not necessarily reliability, but customer service. So if that's what you're making your decisions on, like it still has the most, it's still, I think it's still the airline that has the best rating for customer service. Yeah, I, I know during this fiasco, customer service was terrible. Uh, people were on the phones for hours and hours and hours. And I just don't know how much brand loyalty will really help those people come back and turn around to Southwest. But on the topic of whether or not this is going to force a change, I know that this has sparked conversations at the senator level. Senators are coming together and saying this is unacceptable. People should not be stranded for days within airports during the holiday season. Sure, maybe because of inclement weather, that's something that's out of control, everyone's control. But this this was avoidable. And now the government is looking at Southwest and saying, why weren't your systems updated and when will they be updated? Because at this point... Are, we need to get involved. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the need to get involved, this came up again recently, just this week. Um, there apparently was some kind of glitch or some kind of software infrastructure uh, bug of some kind again this week that caused a lot of planes to land and you know caused a very similar issue for many other airlines. So I'm curious what you all think about the kind of future for Southwest and other airlines who are refusing to expand and modernize their systems. Yeah, speaking of the government, it's kind of funny that I brought that up because the the system that went down was the FAA, um, and that was software um, implemented by a contractor that folks seem to see was corrupt. So I know the turnaround on that one was kind of quick, but it is definitely a little bit nerve-wracking to see such big industries kind of impacted so heavily by their software. In something like the operational system for coordinating and all the different planes going up and out, like the consumer doesn't really have a perspective of that. But what we do have perspective of is their website, their mobile apps. And have you, I don't know if you've ever downloaded one of these for mobile passport or even like basic features, like not to, again, point fingers, but it's shocking. Like we're relying on these companies to fly us through the air to safely reach one point to one point, and yet their mobile apps and their websites are like, oh. I mean, that, we work at a tech company, so we're a little judgy, but. <laughs> that reminds me of um, a very recent, very fresh wound for me, a horror story for my traveling. Um, so I traveled to Texas recently, and I was relying on these apps for a notification about any gate changes or anything else. And I got a notification about a gate change on the opposite side of Dallas airport, um, and I had to get there in like a couple of minutes. It was impossible. Um, so I missed that flight. And then I just kind of stuck around the airport on standby for another flight. And I don't know if you've ever been on standby, but that's kind of just up in the air. If somebody misses their flight, you get their spot. So it's basically not guaranteed. Um, so I was stressing out because Dallas is not my home. And I was just wondering when I was going to get back. I had animals to feed. So I'm curious if y'all had uh, similar horror stories or 
travel woes uh, based on this technology? I personally didn't have to deal with it, but I saw a few people in my uh, on my social medias who were driving across the country, 24-hour trips to make it back home in time for events, weddings, just things they had purchased tickets to. Um, it seemed like a big nightmare. And da- I know the Dallas first- airport is huge, Ruby, so I cannot imagine. I've had my luggage lost so many times. It's... Um, you know, part of that is tech. That is the technology that um, tracks your exact luggage. Part of it is human process, right? So it, it goes hand in hand. You can't have one without the other and then still have a good product. I uh, started putting air tags in my luggage when I check it. So I know where it is at all times. So you so. can tell where it is and it's not with you. <laughs> <laughs> but if it gets lost, Smart. I'm like, I know it's here. Southwest. You should go advise Southwest with all, all your innovations here. I'm sure uh, they, they can start improving their software. Everyone gets a free air tag, and then I think everyone will be happy after that. All right. Coming up next, companies are threatening to give their employees the pink slips if they don't return to the office. Do you think this is going to maneuver on those enterprising companies? We'll discuss this next. All right, so some companies are getting sick of their employees working from home. They want us to be out of this Zoom interface. They want us to wear pants all the time. They think that collaboration is going to be a lot better when we're face-to-face. So what do you guys think? Is there an impact in culture, productivity, if everyone is required to come into the office? I think so. I feel like I, I can only ever speak for myself. And working from home, I feel the most productive. I feel like if I have to do any long-term project planning, I can do that with silent focus time here at home in my walk-in closet office. <laughs> I can't necessarily do that in an office full of people that are just over my shoulder, um, having random side chats that I can't tune out. It just is too distracting in an office for me. Well, this might be a little biased, but Slack, who has done very well through the pandemic, Uh, ran a survey and found that only 12% of people would choose to be back in the office full-time. However, I think a lot more people are are more flexible and they'll be in the office. They'll say, hey, yeah, you know what? I'll go to the office two days a week, three days a week, but then I want to work from home the rest of the time. Um, And I think, you know, I I think that model makes sense. Maybe, Maybe there's some middle ground here as opposed to being fully back in the office versus fully remote. I've worked remote for six years uh, and, you know, I can't imagine going full-time back to the office. As far as culture though, I feel like there is a point being made about culture building. I have uh, through Postman and through other companies that I've worked at needed to go to the office for some culture building activity. And I feel like in person you can accomplish culture building to an extent that's basically impossible virtually. Like we can play code names online all day, but it's not going to be the same as, you know, sitting together, having a meal um, and commiserating about things that happen here and there during the during the day. Oh, and I mean, there's something to be said, like when your boss says something that's like a little bit factually incorrect and then you look off to the side and then you see your other coworkers kind of look off to the side, like, you know, like there's a connection there. Right. And you kind of miss that, I think, uh, being fully remote. Yeah, they say 80% of communication is body language. We don't really get as much of that fully remote. I personally would love to be able to see more of my coworkers in person, but I think it's a give and get. 
or a give and take for for this. Uh, when you're working remotely, you get to work with people all over the country. It's people you would have never had the opportunity to connect with. And when you're working in person, it's very geographically constrained. I would, but Postman um, is finally looking at opening up a hub here in Austin. I'm really excited about being able to go in a couple of days of the week and really hang out with my coworkers in person again. But I agree, Ruby. I think all of the side conversations, the walking out for lunch, walking for coffee, driving to work, that, that all takes time. And time is not a resource I have a lot of. So I, I, love, I love being- It's your quality of life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm with, I'm with, well, I think I'm with you guys. I, but for me, I am more productive. However, I've worked with people who are not more productive in terms of, I want to, you know, collaborate, or I want to like ask a question. And if an entire day goes by, like you can't swing by their desk and kind of like lift your eyebrows at them and in, in like a really friendly way. And then you're just like nagging them on Slack now. And so I've personally worked, not Postman, Postman is perfect, but I've worked at places before where um, I think people have actually quit over not being able to work from home, kind of like thrown a tantrum and said, I have all these other options where they will let me work from home. And then other times it's like so frustrating if you're a manager and you can't get in touch with anybody on your team for a whole day. What's that? That's an interesting manager perspective to share there uh, because you do want to keep tabs on what folks are doing. And it just is a lot easier, maybe even more friendly to just connect with somebody in person that way. Um, Tamina, you brought up a good point about commuting and traveling to work, though, that I wanted to mention. I have this conspiracy theory that's based on only suspicion um, that the auto Tell industry, <laughs> the auto industry, is behind this push to go back into the office. Because if you think about it, during the pandemic, there were like millions of cars off the road. No one was getting their car service because no one was using their car, and not a lot of folks are buying new cars. So. I don't know. This is my my theory as to why there's suddenly this huge push. Yeah, I, I'll add to yours. I think they're in um, cahoots with the commercial real estate industry. You know, Pete, there are all these massive sky rises that were built in downtown Austin specifically, and I'm sure everywhere, and they're all office buildings. And then the pandemic hit, and now they're empty. And not only them, but some companies made, you know, multi-year investments in these commercial office buildings. And like, somebody needs to use this space. So we're going to force you to use it if you're not going to show up. But I believe in your conspiracy. I, I, I think that it's the car industry and the commercial real estate industries. Well, what do you guys think about work-life balance? So no, before these work from home policies, um, I feel like a lot of people were already talking about work-life balance and what they meant was like home, time at home in their regular lives, and then time in the office. But now work-life balance looks different because you might be working from your home and your office. How do you guys manage it or what have you seen companies do to help that out? Well, for me over the last six years, I'm, I'm a little bit of a workaholic just to you know put that out there. Like I work a really? lot, but what working like remotely uh, has done for me over the last six years is allow me to have flexibility in that schedule. So I've got three kids. They've got like wild schedules. I have to cart them all around town and do a bunch of things with them. But I can do that potentially in the middle of the day and then come back and work later into the evening, right? I can break it up to kind of fit my my home life and what I need for, for my, my one life, right? My human being, Kevin, life uh, to, to manage kind of both these worlds together. I've heard some um, like... 
I, I see an argument for a couple sides. Like, I know a lot of people who lived, you know, in really small apartments close to the office because they liked that lifestyle of just being able to walk to work. But And then suddenly they had to work in their living room every single day and their kids are running around at home. And that took away the ability to feel like they had a work-life balance, whereas work is in one place and the rest of your life is back home and you have the ability to get it all done in the office. And I mean, right now I'm sitting in my kitchen and there sometimes it does feel a little bit hard to disconnect when my laptop is just right here. I could open it up and get right back to work. We talk about work-life balance. And for me, that's sometimes it's easy for me to define what work is, but not so easy to define what life is when I'm thinking about balancing the two. The way that I think about it, um, previously, like in the classroom, I was in a room all the time, working all the time. Um, And what was difficult for me in that context, in that situation, was going to the bathroom. And so now, for me, what I like to think about instead of work-life balance is like work-bowel movement balance. Like, do I have a chance to go to the bathroom when I need to go? If I do, then I'm in a good situation. I should probably keep that situation going (laughs) for as long as I can. We want more bowel movements. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do agree. There's less like awkwardness to like, you know, having to go to the bathroom in the middle of an office. (laughs) We used to work in an, I used to work in an office where there was two bathrooms for the entire office in the building and the line would stack up. So I'm really happy I don't have to deal with that anymore. Great. So the push to work from home is 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 human driven through human needs, it sounds like. And from what I'm hearing, the push to work in the office is very manager driven. Right. Um, I think that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to kind of dig into at some point. I don't think that's true. There's a ton of people that are um, like Ruby was saying, they need a space away from their family just to feel that separation away from distraction. Mm. There's a lot of people that want to go in the office that are not managers. I guess we'll see who wins out. And on this week's edition of The Young and the Restless, sorry, I mean the Sam Bankman Freed saga, we'll continue that next. As disgraced FDX founder, Sam Bankman Freed, or SBF, it's too much of a name mouthful, I'm going to say SBF, pleads not guilty to eight counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. In a New York federal courtroom, the Federal Reserve, FDIC, and OCC are expressing concerns about the risk crypto assets can pose to the banking system. And it's interesting to me that he pled not guilty where FDX's co-founder and former CTO and the former CEO of Alameda Research, which was also, uh, I want to say, founded by SPF, they have both pled guilty to multiple federal fraud charges. Um, not only that, but SBF is just not able to stay quiet right now while he's out on his $250 million bond. And he actually wrote a blog post um, today's just he, he wrote a blog post just a couple of days ago, I'm sure, against the wishes of his lawyers <laughs> um, trying to explain what's going on. So I don't know, guys. Do you guys think crypto's doomed? Where do you think it's headed? I mean, there is that question of like, did we think crypto was doomed from the start? I'm kind of of that camp. 
Um, just a wee bit. Um, although, you know, that wouldn't make my brother very excited. He's a huge crypto fan, always trying to get me to invest in crypto, still would. Um, so hopefully he's listening. But anyway, um, I do think it was doomed from the start because it started after the, was it the 2008 financial crisis, right? That Bitcoin came out. Um, and so it was kind of targeted and marketed as this like anti-banking establishment thing. Um, and so it was counting on a lot of hype and the hype was what caused a lot of people to invest in it. And if all you're really counting on is hype, um, I don't know, I feel like that's a bubble that's waiting to burst. I'm not sure how you all feel about crypto and whether it was doomed to start as well. I know I know people who have gotten very wealthy off of crypto, right? Um, but they were also coming from a place of uh, financial privilege prior to that, right? So when I see like rich people getting richer, I, I don't get incredibly excited. Um, so I've always kind of like avoided crypto to a certain degree. Uh, now when we talk about SBF, it sounds like this is just sort of the cream of the crop of the rich getting richer. Uh, going so far as to do things that, that are potentially illegal. We have allegations, right? And Tamina, maybe you can explain like some of these allegations a bit better to me. Like I, I read that, you know, they were siphoning money from uh, like, you know, their crypto stuff over to a hedge fund and then like losing a bunch of money in that hedge fund. Is that yeah. is that illegal? Like companies do this every day. They get money and they reinvest it elsewhere, right? I want to say what uh, SBF and his team were doing was insider trading. Um, and so he came, he's written this blog post trying to explain what happened and say, you know, it's funny, there's a meme going around right now where he just made an oops a daisy uh, to the tune of like, you know, night. Uh, you know, hundreds of billion, uh, over almost a hundred billion dollars. Oopsie daisy. Um, so anytime I ever get in trouble from now on, I'm just like, oopsie. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, so he had a, a stake in Alameda, just a, a hedge fund, and he had client funds transferred to Alameda without getting um, approval or consent from these clients, and then stated that Alameda is. The whole is the problem here. They set risky bets. They, they, they had their operations all wrong. And he doesn't talk about the fact that he was he had a big stake in t what Alameda was doing as well. He leaves that part conveniently out of the story that he tells us. Um, and he also doesn't in his blog post talk about how he used the FTX funds for personal expenses, buying luxury vi uh, vi uh, villas, and that the platform was basically serving him as his personal bank. So the shrimp, don't forget about <laughs> yeah, the shrimp. Yeah, all the shrimp. Got a shrimp. So there was but a lot It's just going so interesting on. that this story is so big right now as like there's fears of going into a recession and as people are struggling and there's massive layoffs. Like the thing we're talking about so much is this, this person who manipulated, who's a rich person manipulating other rich people to get even richer, right? And- Ruby, you were asking if crypto's doomed from the start. I personally don't think so. With any new, let's call it a bubble because there is speculation, with anything that's rising, there's going to be lots of players and there's going to be some jockeying before we figure out which one's going to be the more stable um, thing to invest in. And as far as the rich getting richer, you know, maybe we hear about the rich people getting richer because they have more uh, principle to invest, but there's nothing blocking people without financial means to be investing in crypto. It might be financial literacy, which has some correlation with wealth, but it's not 
again, they were targeting children. Children were getting rich, have gotten rich off of crypto. I, uh, so in 2008, I was in eighth grade and I had a friend who purchased Bit- a, a Bitcoin when it first came out and he sold it for like $10 <laughs> and he's really not happy about that. So if he held on to it, he would have been one of those kids getting richer. But yeah, I don't know. My brothers really got into it and then they got my dad into it right before a big dip in the market um, and they got him to buy a bunch of Dogecoin, which... I feel like crypto, I I don't know if it was doomed from the start, but do I think it was destined to be a roller coaster full of high highs and very low lows? Yes. But do I think people like the adrenaline rush also? Do I think it's a gambler's game? I think so. And I I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, Just yesterday, I saw what Miss, um, in Miss Universe, uh, Miss El Salvador was dressed up as Bitcoin um, because they were the first nation to recognize it as a currency. So it seems like globally it's still going strong. I don't think it's going anywhere. Well, I'm stoked about the drama. So I'll just keep <laughs> listening to the news. I live for it. <laughs> awesome. Parting shots next. All right, so for our parting shots, we're going to be sharing something about ourselves that others would find most surprising. So Joyce, do you want to start us off? What would others find most surprising about you? Okay, well, the reason why I picked this parting shot is because I think the goal of this is to let all of us know a little bit more about each other. So I will pull this one fact about a previous job that I used to have. I used to be a boot camp instructor, not a coding boot camp instructor, but a physical boot camp. And so some people are like, yeah, 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 that tracks. Other people are like, I'm so surprised. And what that tells you about my personality is like boot camp instructors, like a lot of people in instructor relationships, Ruby, you are a teacher instructor. I don't know if that's what they call it, teacher. And so a lot of times people will fall into three categories. One is drill sergeant, coach, and cheerleader. And so I think every instructor is some different shape pie of those three. And so that gives you some more insight into my parting shot. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I feel like I can I can see that for you, <laughs> Joyce. Um, okay, my parting shot, something most people would find surprising about me. Um, I was lucky enough to get to travel around Europe a little bit. I really in my early 20s and I really budgeted it and I was with an ex at the time and we love to be ultra light travelers no and I have completely changed as a human at this point in my life but we traveled across Italy out of one 40 liter backpack between the two of us which is very convenient for me because I didn't have to carry it um but we were basically wearing and re-wearing and re-wearing the same clothes for two weeks. And while I don't think I would do it again, it was a fun experience when we did it. That sounds like a blast. Um, For my parting shot, I do want to share something that I shared with my team earlier, speaking of team building in an online community. Um, Something we discussed was, what are you most afraid of? So... I like to describe myself as a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. I've done things like skydiving, ziplining, you name it. But one thing I am definitely afraid of is elevators. 
because if it falls, I don't know where I'm going. And I have this fear of like falling into an abyss or like into unknowns. It's the same with like grates. Like if you're walking around New York City and the subway system is below you, I cannot walk on grates because I don't know where I'm going to be falling. Like I have to see where I'm going. (laughs) I think that's totally valid. Uh, so something surprising about me. I don't know if people would find this surprising, but I've been to Mardi Gras in New Orleans 23 times. Um, wow. So part of this is a little bit of a trick because I grew up in New Orleans. So like the first 18 years were free, basically. But then I, I go back every now and then as well. Um, and so what a lot of people think of sort of Mardi Gras in New Orleans is kind of this wild, massive, unhinged party. And that's true. Uh, but it's, you know, it is also a lot of fun. There is a whole family element to it as well. So it's not just sort of like, you know, uh, frat bros getting really drunk and puking on each other. It's, you know, also like families getting together and like enjoying the the parades. It's enjoying the atmosphere. It is, it has kind of like an American Christmassy feel to it where people get really excited about it. Um, but yeah, it's been, been a, a, a real joy in my life and uh you know i've got family still still involved in mardi gras parades to this day so that's really lucky yeah that's awesome i was just in new orleans um this last weekend for a friend's birthday and it was my i would say my first real time visiting as an adult and actually experiencing the city and it was just so fun and there's so much culture and i've never done mardi gras but i feel like i've definitely got to put it on the list we do breaking changes around table mardi gras there we go. All right. Let's film on location. We just got the <laughs> approval for that. <laughs> we got the thumbs up. All right. Well, that was a really fun roundtable. Thank you so much for joining us. Like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you at the next Breaking Changes. <laughs>